This is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up for you this week, we have Tom Cruise on his new movie about one of the last great stories from World War II. Aaron and Sasha Baron Cohen reinvent holiday music for Hanukkah. Keith Richards turned 65. Oscar Hammerstein's unpublished lyrics, until now. And a seven-year-old piano prodigy. But first, this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Coming up, the brilliant lyrics of Oscar Hammerstein. But first, the economic slowdown is forcing some businesses to find creative ways to keep their operations afloat. One way, bartering. That ancient form of doing business has seen a 25% jump in recent months. From member station WFCR, Tina Antolini reports. Josh Gardner owns a company called The Jar Store that distributes glassware and candle-making materials from this sprawling warehouse in New Britain, Connecticut. There are rows upon rows of jars of every kind and shelves of bottles containing the stuff that puts the scent in scented candles, from autumn pear to cucumber melon. So a lot of the fragrances that uh, you, uh, you have around your house starts here. Here's one that's very popular. This you smell throughout the holidays regardless of what you buy. Christmas Splendor. Even if the scent of Christmas Splendor is ubiquitous this time of year, Gardner's seen a drop-off in sales ever since the economy took a turn for the worst. He says a lot of his clients, small-time candle makers and specialty food providers who use his glass jars, have been going out of business because of the dive in consumer spending. That's when he heard about bartering. When I first heard it, I laughed. I couldn't understand it, that we had gone back to some archaic, I mean, literally, like, pre-Babylonian exchange mechanism. I picture like two shepherds trading goats for cows in like northern Nepal. Despite the fact that Gardner's business involves no livestock, he was convinced to give bartering a try by a friend named Debbie Lombardi. Barter Business, can I help you? Lombardi is the owner of Barter Business Unlimited, a barter exchange just down the road from Gardner's warehouse in Bristol, Connecticut. She's sort of a business matchmaker, finding one client's service to meet another's needs. Here's how it works. A company opens something like a bank account where it can build up bartering credits. Let's take the jar store. He sells jars to, let's say, a new an outlet, maybe a florist that he never had before. He sells $5,000 worth of jars. He did not have to take a flower. Rather, Josh can turn that into employee benefit programs, payroll service, vehicle maintenance, probably signage and website work. And those are things he can find through the barter exchange, covering some of his expenses without having to use any cash, which he's found attractive in the middle of a national credit crunch. Others have, too. The International Reciprocal Trade Association, which tracks the barter industry, says barter transactions are up as much as 25 percent. While barter is taxed the same way as cash, Lombardi says this recession is making converts out of people who were skeptical about bartering to sustain their business. Time gets tight and your warehouse starts to fill up, or your guys aren't working and they're on the payroll, you know, you start to look for other alternatives. So our phones have been ringing off the hook. Lombardi makes a commission on everything bought through Barter Business Unlimited. She's seeing everything from restaurants turning to barter to fill increasingly empty tables to a surge in real estate listings. And I've never seen this, and, and I've been doing this business 22 years. I have never seen someone come to me and say, I'll give you a million dollar property and I'll take $500,000 down on barter. Never happened. And there's another trend Lombardi is seeing for the first time. People like dentists and other service providers sending their delinquent customers to her to see if there's something they can barter away in lieu of paying their bill in cash. When it's a choice between going into collection or making a trade, barter looks like a pretty appealing way to do business. For NPR News, I'm Tina Antolini. Not a week goes by there isn't some story about endangered newspapers or layoffs in the broadcasting and entertainment industry. Now there's bad news from the world of publishing, where major houses have laid off staff, restructured management, limited the number of manuscripts they buy. Charlotte Abbott is a contributing editor for Publishers Weekly and joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. So what's business like this year? Book sales have definitely slipped. What's your analysis of of what's driven sales down then? Well, the general retail fall-off, I think, has had a big, big effect. Interestingly, children's fiction is stronger than the rest of the, the book publishing categories. I think people do not feel that books are a luxury for children, perhaps mm-hmm. the way they might for adults. And I also hear that libraries are seeing a lot of activities. So I think it's not that people are not reading. It's that they're not buying books and finding other ways to get their reading fixed 
satisfied, except in the case of children where they are buying books. Mm. Well, that raises this question. We've seen the introduction of uh, electronic readers, e-books, the Kindle from Amazon and the Sony reader. How are they selling? Does this represent a whole new movement in the book industry? It does in some ways. I think it's very notable, certainly. And as far as price point goes, ebooks are certainly the cheaper option coming in at about six or seven dollars per book. Ebook sales are up as much as three hundred percent for many of the major houses, but that's in a context where ebooks are still representing still under about one percent of total book sales. May I may I press you a bit about some of these new technologies? Sure. Because I can uh, I can remember a time when people thought that, you know, nothing would replace the newspaper. And obviously, a lot of people have found some kind of replacement for newspapers online and through other media. And, you know, I've talked to recording industry executives who've said, we'd love to get out of the hardware business. You know, all the making CDs, making the tamper-proof covers. Now, as I don't have to tell you, in books, to print them, to sell them, is expensive and, and speculative. Can books really expect, even for 10 years, to not be subject to technological changes? Phrased that way, I don't think so. No, I think that ebooks will continue to grow. Experientially, right now, the only place that I really see people reading them, um, using the, the Kindle or the Sony Reader, these electronic book reading devices, is either on the subway in New York City, where you have a, you know, certainly a group who can af- afford these technologies and who, you know, can use them in public. Um, And then also for business travelers, um, again, an audience with a disposable income who is space conscious and technologically adept. I do agree that there are certain kind of books that may find their audiences eroded. We've already seen this, a certain kind of current affairs book, you know, the torn from the headline story. Enough of that is is available on TV or in excerpts or online. People can blog now and tell their story directly to their audience. They don't have to have the intervention of a, of a book the way that they used to. So I do see some erosion there. I do see that there will continue to be an audience and a readership for books as objects as well. The book is still a technology that works really well. You can get it wet, and the most it'll do is wrinkle. Um, You can slip it in your purse or your pocket. It works. Charlotte Abbott, contributing editor for Publishers Weekly. Ms. Abbott, thanks so much. Thank you. Oscar Hammerstein II authored such American musical theater classics as Showboat and Carousel, which were not only entertaining but had substance. New Coffee Table Book, the complete lyrics of Oscar Hammerstein II, covers the master's career. Jeff London met with Amy Ash, the book's editor, to look at how Mr. Hammerstein and his partner, Richard Rogers, worked on one moment in South Pacific. Amy Ash has spent the last seven years poking around archives and libraries, poring through boxes of sheet music, and leafing through scripts to come up with the definitive collection of Oscar Hammerstein's lyrics. How many lyrics are actually in this book? 850. And how many of those lyrics are lyrics that have never been published before? When I counted them up, it seemed as if about a quarter had never been published before. Among the treasures Amy Ash has uncovered are lyrics written for but never used in classic Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Oklahoma, South Pacific, King and I, they wrote more than they needed. They would write something and then realize a more effective way to do that moment, so they'd write a new song for that character and that occasion. Like this occasion. One of the last songs to be written for South Pacific was the love song that Lieutenant Cable, the young Princeton-educated lieutenant, would sing to the local girl that he's just had sex with. And it took Hammerstein and Rogers several attempts to come up with a song that was satisfactory for the occasion. The song they eventually came up with was this. Younger than springtime are you Softer than starlight are you Warmer than winds of June are the gentle lips you gave me. But before that, they wrote My Friend. Amy Ash reads a bit of the lyric. Well, my friend, our day is at an end. Our next kiss will have to be our last. 
Soon, my friend, I'll be around the bend, alone with a dream already past. Joshua Logan, South Pacific's director and co-author, wrote in his memoirs that when he heard the song, quote, I was so let down that I blurted out my first feelings. That's awful. That's the worst song I ever heard. Good God, that's terrible. They looked at me in shock. No one had ever spoken to them like that before, I'm sure. So they uh, made another attempt with a different melody, and um, that melody did not find a home in South Pacific, but will be familiar to people who know the great musicals. Suddenly lovely, suddenly my life is lovely. Suddenly living certainly looks good to me. Suddenly happy, suddenly my heart is happy. Is it a girl? Could be, could be. Recognize the tune? More on that later. Editor Amy Ash says Suddenly Lovely didn't exactly capture the dramatic moment. It's kind of a chipper melody. It's not passionate, I don't think. It's happy, it's bouncy, but it's maybe not what a man says to the girl that he just made love to. Still, Hammerstein went back to the drawing board and wrote a completely new lyric to the same tune. Suddenly lucky, suddenly our arms are lucky. Suddenly lucky, suddenly our lips have kissed. A better lyric, but is it appropriate for a Marine after having made love to a young girl to sing a song called Suddenly Lucky? I don't know how that would have gone over in 1949. It is unintentionally amusing to us, for sure. With time running out before the out-of-town tryout, Rogers remembered an unused tune one of his daughters loved, and Hammerstein wrote a lyric to it. They needed to nail that song, and in the last burst of inspiration, they wrote together the beautiful Younger Than Springtime. And when you're and join fade my arms and fill my heart as now they do then younger than springtime am I gayer than laughter am I Suddenly lovely, suddenly lucky? Well, a couple of years later, Rogers and Hammerstein were in New Haven previewing a new show called The King and I. And they realized that Anna, the teacher played by Gertrude Lawrence, needed to sing a song to the Siamese children in the first act. And one of the stars of South Pacific came to Rogers and Hammerstein's rescue, says Amy Ash. Mary Martin said to them, you remember that little dance, the little music that we used for a warm-up in South Pacific? You just did it for rehearsals. That would be a great tune. And so, Suddenly Lovely, Suddenly Lucky turned into Getting to Know You. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. If you want to get to know Oscar Hammerstein better, there are more stories like this in the complete lyrics of Oscar Hammerstein II. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Special thanks to uh, singer Jeff Harner and pianist Alex Rybeck for their renditions of Suddenly Lovely and Suddenly Lucky. To hear full renditions of both songs and to read the lyrics, you can come to our website, npr.org. Willard Wirtz is 96 years old, and he's seen even more than most people of whom it can be said. They've seen it all. Mr. Wirtz was born before World War I began. William Howard Taft was president. He went to law school during the Depression. 
He helped oversee the U.S. economy during World War II. He wrote speeches for Governor Adlai Stevenson of Illinois, then became his law partner, was Secretary of Labor under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. Mr. Wirtz has just written a slender, lively memoir called In the Rearview Mirror, which is mostly a tribute not to any of the famous names he's known, but Jane Wirtz, to whom he was married for 66 years. So as another man from Illinois prepares to move his family to Washington, we asked Mr. Wirtz if he felt that leaving his thriving Chicago law practice for government was a sacrifice for his family. No, I never thought of it as a sacrifice. The salaries were terrible. Yeah. Uh, that didn't matter. Uh, most of the uh, people in the cabinet uh, had made some other kind of arrangement and uh, you could hardly live on a cabinet salary. I was lucky Jane made all her own clothes. And they were good. They were beautiful. There was a different attitude then toward working for the government. But that same attitude is developing in, uh, in the Barack Obama selection of cabinet members. Uh, I don't think those people uh, uh, feel they're making any sacrifice. But uh, there was a feeling that working for the government was a pretty proud piece of business. Um, and how do you explain the fact that far fewer, there are far fewer union members today than there, there were when you were Secretary of Labor? Um, two or three elements in that. Uh, one is that uh, they now have gotten a number of things they used to have to strike for. Uh, wage increases, holidays, things of that kind. Another is that the unions used to be uh, organizing uh, to bargain with large companies, General Motors, for example. Um, and if they won the election, I mean 15,000 new members. Now most of the bargaining is with very small uh, business operations. If they won the election, well, it'll be a big one if it's a thousand. It'll be more like four or five hundred. So there's that difference. When you were Secretary of Labor, you were on a flight with other members of the cabinet to Tokyo. Yeah. When you got a bulletin. What happened? Secretary Rusk, Secretary of State, was chairman of our group. He uh, went up to the cabin, came back with a piece of uh, telegram tape, and he called us all together and said, we understand, but we're not sure that the president has been shot. And uh, then he went back to the cabin and was up there about 15 or 20 minutes. The way I knew what had happened was when the wing of that plane dipped and we started back. We were over Wake Island at the time, mm -hmm. and we knew that we were coming back. We knew what that meant and we knew that the president was dead. Did you get along with Lyndon Johnson? For two or three years, I was very close to Lyndon Johnson. Worked with him on the various programs and worked with him in connection with the uh, 1964 election. Uh, and then in about 1966 or seven, um, I began to have a feeling that his Vietnam War program did not make sense and should be stopped and uh, wrote him to that effect. That was the end of the close relationship. Mm -hmm. After that, a question about a resignation, feeling that it would have been silly for a Secretary of Labor to resign over a Vietnam War position, because he wouldn't really know about it. The cabinet meetings never took up the war. Those cabinet meetings are part of democracy's kabuki dance. They don't really amount to anything. So I didn't really know firsthand anything more than I learned from the newspapers. So I did not resign. Mr. Wirtz, what's it like to be 96? Uh, I don't recommend it. 
Uh, Jane died six years ago. That takes the fun out of it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I have been lucky uh, to be healthy for 96 years. If I had it to do over, I'd arrange to quit at the time most people do. Why, do you mind me asking? Well, uh, you tire out. Uh, you're, I, I now can't walk without help. And the muscles in your head get tired uh, the way your other muscles do. If I work my head muscles for an hour, mm -hmm. just make, keeping me up with my bank book, I have to quit and rest up for a while. And uh, most of your friends drop off one by one. Uh, you still have good friends and we have family. Family is a blessing that keeps on. But really, you just slow up. And uh, I, I say I wouldn't recommend it. Mr. Wirtz, thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you for good questions are easy to answer. Thank you, sir. Willard Wirtz has written a new book, uh, a memoir, In the Rearview Mirror. Coming up, the delights of a delightful child protege. But first, a delightful children's book. Now, the story isn't new. It's been around for almost 60 years. But The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber has been reprinted and now re-released in hardcover by the New York Review of Books. Joining us now to talk about this new edition of a children's classic is our own classic Daniel Pinkwater, our ambassador to the world of children's literature. He joins us from his home in upstate New York. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, I'm feeling more classic every day. <laughs> I'm Scott, glad to I, hear it, yes. I, I want to make a little speech. Okay. I've been waiting and waiting to talk about this for a long time, but I wanted just the right book to come along to bring to the listeners. The New York Review of Books has been bringing out really fabulous books of the past, out of print, some things I remember from my own childhood, some I never heard of, all of them are solid and genuinely good. Well, it's, I'm done now. It's, it's beautifully done. Uh, the, this, thir the 13 Clocks is the only one that I've, uh, that I've seen, up close and personal. It's a fairy tale. Well, it's, it, it's a modern take on the standard fairy tale, okay? And if you like The Princess Bride, you're going to like this. If you like a book by Jules Pfeiffer, A Barrel of Laughs, A Veil of Tears, you'll like this. If you remember Fractured Fairy Tales on Rocky and Bullwinkle, you'll like this. We should just read the beginning. We're not going to give away the plot because it's all in the language with a book like this. And who wants to go first? You go first. I'll go first. Once upon a time, in a gloomy castle on a lonely hill, where there were 13 clocks that wouldn't go, there lived a cold, aggressive duke and his niece, the princess Seralinda. She was warm in every wind and weather, but he was always cold. His hands were as cold as his smile and almost as cold as his heart. He wore gloves when he was asleep, and he wore gloves when he was awake, which made it difficult for him to pick up pins or coins or the kernels of nuts or to tear the wings from nightingales. He was six feet four and forty-six, and even colder than he thought he was. One eye wore a velvet patch. The other glittered through a monocle, which made half his body seem closer to you than the other half. He had lost one eye when he was twelve, for he was fond of peering into nests and lairs in search of birds and animals to maul. One afternoon, a mother shrike had mauled him first. His nights were spent in evil dreams, and his days were given to wicked schemes. Wickedly scheming, he would limp and cackle through the cold corridors of the castle, planning new impossible feats for the suitors of Seralinda to perform. He did not wish to give her hand in marriage, since her hand was the only warm hand in the castle. Even the hand of his watch and the hands of all the thirteen clocks were frozen. 
They had all frozen at the same time on a snowy night seven years before, and after that it was always ten minutes to five in the castle. Travelers and mariners would look up at the gloomy castle on the lonely hill and say, Time lies frozen there. It's always then. It's never now. The cold duke was afraid of now, for now has warmth and urgency, and then is dead and buried. Now might bring a certain kind of gay and shining courage. But no, the cold duke muttered, the prince will break himself against a new and awful labor, a place too high to reach, a thing too far to find, a burden too heavy to lift. The duke was afraid of now, but he tampered with the clocks to see if they would go out of a strange perversity, praying that they wouldn't. Tinkers and tinkerers and a few wizards who happened by tried to start the clocks with tools or magic words or by shaking them and cursing, but nothing whirred or ticked. The clocks were dead, and in the end, brooding on it, the duke decided he had murdered time, slain it with his sword, and wiped his bloody blade upon its beard and left it lying there, bleeding hours and minutes, its springs uncoiled and sprawling, its pendulum disintegrating. The duke limped because his legs were of different lengths. The right one had outgrown the left because, when he was young, he had spent his mornings place-kicking pups and punting kittens. He would say to a suitor, "'What is the difference in the length of my legs?' And if the youth replied, why, one is shorter than the other, the duke would run him through with the sword he carried in his sword cane and feed him to the geese. The suitor was supposed to say, why, one is longer than the other. Many a prince had been run through for naming the wrong difference. Others had been slain for offenses equally trivial, trampling the duke's camellias, failing to praise his wines, staring too long at his gloves, gazing too long at his niece. Those who survived his scorn and sword were given incredible labors to perform in order to win his niece's hand, the only warm hand in the castle, where time had frozen to death at ten minutes to five one snowy night. They were told to cut a slice of moon or change the ocean into wine. They were set to finding things that never were and building things that could not be. They came and tried and failed and disappeared and never came again. And some, as I have said, were slain for using names that start with X or dropping spoons or wearing rings or speaking disrespectfully of sin. Daniel, the, the music in this book is extraordinary, isn't it's it? It's incantatory. It, it's always on the verge of breaking into poetry, and it goes on like this, uh, listeners. Um, it does not lose speed or disappoint, and I so admire this book. I'm I'm very familiar with with James Thurber, the humorist. I had I've never read a book he's written for children before. Uh, now that I have, it seems to me there's no difference. Well, there's something very wrong in my opinion with making sure that every kid is going to know every word in a book before they see it, before they read it. This does take a bit of a stretch. It does take a bit of thinking. Uh, referring to the dictionary is not always going to help with words like gollocks and zatch, uh, but the fact that uh, this is maybe the book where, where one learns that you can make up words. Daniel, thanks so much for calling this to our attention and the whole series. It's extra big pleasure, and I, I'm so happy to talk about these books and this book in particular. Uh, the book is The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber. It's illustrated by Mark Simant and published, as we said, by the New York Review of Books Children's Collection. Daniel Pinkwater has written many fine books for children and adults, probably many farm animals. His forthcoming novel is The Igacy, and to hear more about Daniel Pinkwater's picks, you can come to our website, npr.org. Ethan Bortnick is not only a musical prodigy, he has a sense of humor about it. I was on a lot of shows. First, I was on CBS Early Show. Then I went to Jay Leno. Then I was on Good Morning America. I was on Inside Edition. Then I went Access Hollywood. And I also opened for Nelly Furtado. That was a clip taken from Ethan Bortnick's YouTube trailer promoting his DVD. Oh, yeah, now we can add NPR to that list. By the way, Ethan Bortnick is seven years old, but he's already composed 30 songs. He joins us now from his home in Hollywood, Florida. Thanks very much for being with us. You're welcome.
How did you wind up learning the piano when you were three? Well, my mom and dad didn't really believe me in piano lessons because I always asked them, Mom, Dad, I want piano lessons. And they're like, you know what? I don't think you could have piano lessons because you're still in diapers. (laughs) (laughs) So what what, what changed their mind? You? I listened to every note of Mozart's Oliturka. Yeah. And... I started playing it, and they're like, wait, the audio's not on, so who is it? Oh, man. They thought it was a ghost or something (laughs) playing, but I'm like, it's me, it's me. And they're like, no, it can't be. And I'm like, look. They look, and they're like, okay, now you could have piano lessons. You were three. Mm-hmm. My gosh. And you write music, too, don't you? Um, yeah, but I never put it on paper because I think when I put it on paper, it looks really ugly, my <sighs> notes. That must be an awful lot to keep in your mind, a musical composition. Mm-hmm. I'm told you've written a great composition called Arctic Jazz. Yeah, and it's about a manatee who went all the way from Florida to Antarctica yeah. to have a jazz party. Well, it's a great story. Can, can we hear a bit of it? Sure. Thank you. That's just wonderful. But we still have to stay humble. I respect that. And, and how many hours a day do you practice, would you guess? Um, I know this sounds really, really funny. Yeah. But sometimes I don't practice a lot, but mm-hmm. I do practice in my sleep. I'm like a zombie. I'm like playing the piano yeah. while I'm dreaming. Wow. So do you, are you tired when you get up, or do your fingers hurt? Um, well, when I get up, I just get ready for school, and then if I get up and everyone's sleeping, I mm-hmm. just have some fun and do whatever I want. Now, now may I ask, <clears throat> do you ever uh, do you ever think about being like a jet pilot or a baseball player or a fireman? Well, I know this. Um, you never thought of it, but I'm going to be a zookeeper. That's a wonderful thing. To um, but I know this is not good for like a piano player, but I'm going to clean the poopy of the animals. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that's an important job. And I, I don't think it's necessarily bad for a piano player. Just um, use your shoulders to, to lift the shovel, not your fingers. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's what you have to do. You have to keep your fingers, you know, in, in good condition. Sounds like you really like animals. I I love animals. Oh, well, that's, that's why I write every song about animals. Oh my gosh, I read like the manatee in, in Arctic Jazz. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ethan. Now uh, Hanukkah begins very soon. You know, I'm a Hanukkah boy. I was born um, December twenty fourth. So you'll have a Hanukkah birthday. I have been told you play a terrific version of Hivenu Shalom Alechem. Yeah. Could we hear a little of that? Sure. Ivenu shalom, shalom, shalom alechem. Once again, alechem. Ivenu shalom alechem. Ivenu shalom alechem. 
הבאנו שלום, שלום, שלום עליכם. היי, איתן. איתן, זה היה פשוט מדהים. תודה. וזה היה מדהים חנוכה, לא? כן. איתן, אתה מדהים חנוכה. תודה. מה אתה רוצה לעשות עכשיו? Do you imagine writing a piece of music or playing someplace famous? Uh, um, or, if know... I would do something else, I would go to Whole Foods right now to buy <laughs> some food. Well, what, what would you like at Whole Foods? Um, goat cheese, yeah. um, bread, broccoli, mushrooms, chicken nuggets. Um, let's see, what else? You sound hungry, Ethan. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, now I'm really getting hungry. Okay. Well, we won't, we won't delay you. Maybe you and your, your, your father, I guess, is there. Maybe you guys can make a run to Whole Foods. Okay. Well, Ethan, it's been, it's been awfully nice talking to you. You're just a Thank remarkable you. young man. Thank you. And happy Hanukkah and happy birthday. Thank you. Ethan Bortnick joined us from his home in Hollywood, Florida. His DVD is called Live in Concert by me, Ethan Bortnick. It's out now. And to watch the YouTube trailer promoting his DVD, you can come to our website, npr.org slash soapbox. NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg dropped by this week to help with our vlog, Open Mic. Now, she didn't come by to talk about any of the great Supreme Court debates about church and state or keeping religious displays out of public space, but about Christmas at the Totenberg household. My mother always said that it didn't matter that we were Jewish. Christmas was too good a holiday for kids not to celebrate it. So we had a Christmas tree. Mm-hmm with the Star of David on top, and we sang Christmas carols because she said the Christmas music was great music. And so I grew up singing Christmas carols. We, we want to hear you sing as soon right. as we can. And okay. You, 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 yeah, I, you're going to sing, I think, what I can fairly refer to as, uh, forgive me, the most goyish of all possible Christmas carols. <laughs> sort of, sort of. But this is the prettiest one, I think, anyway. So I'm going to sing one verse of it and one verse only. Should we just start oh, from the top? Okay. okay. The silent part. Silent night, holy night, always calm, always bright, wrong young virgin, mother and child, holy tough reporter can sing very tenderly. Well, you can watch our short Christmas special with Nina and the Weekend Edition staff on our blog, npr.org slash soapbox, and on YouTube slash Weekend Edition. Our friend Juan Williams has uh, another vlog this week, but uh, no singing. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. I've been told by someone who knows Tom Cruise and likes him very much that Mr. Cruise is so utterly professional an actor who knows his lines, shows up on time, and greets the crew by name, that it can be a disappointing interview because he's always on message. Well, his new film, Valkyrie, has a pretty powerful message from history. It's the story of Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, 
who was at the center of the plot of German generals who tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler and take over the government to surrender to the Allies. The army swore an oath, an oath that won't just die with Hitler. It doesn't matter. It only matters that we act now before we lose the war. Otherwise, this will always be Hitler's Germany. And we have to show the world that not all of us were like him. That is not enough for me. There has to be a chance of success. Then find a way. Tom Cruise plays Stauffenberg, the man who brought a bomb in a briefcase to a meeting with the Fuhrer. All the other German generals have British accents and are played by Kenneth Branagh, Bill Nahi, and Terence Stamp. We sat down with Tom Cruise and the film's director, Brian Singer, in New York. When I read a script, I'm I'm looking at it just like an audience uh, watching a film. And I found the story to be very uniquely told, uh, this conspiracy suspense thriller. And I found it to be very entertaining and also a story that I hadn't heard. Stauffenberg himself, someone who as early as 1938 is on record saying someone's got to shoot that bastard. You know, I knew pieces of it, you know, the bomb under the table. Mm-hmm. But then when in reading the script, I thought I knew where it was going to go and, and what was going to happen, and I found it utterly uh, compelling. Well, Mr. Singer, how do, how do you, I mean, we know the ending, okay? How do you, how do you convey suspense in, in a film where everybody knows that Hitler doesn't get assassinated? Well, we have two things going. I mean, first of all, for most people, they don't quite know the ending of this particular story, of this attempt, and of and, and they don't know the fact that it was much more than just an attempt on Hitler's life. There was an, an actual attempt to take over the entire Nazi government, and a lot of it went into play, and a lot of it was temporarily successful. In fact, American audiences might cheer for German soldiers as they store military headquarters and take it over, temporarily, for the plotters. When Valkyrie was being shot last year, several German legislators were reportedly distressed that Mr. Cruz had been cast in the film. Klaus von Stauffenberg is one of the few genuine German heroes of World War II. Tom Cruise is quite famously a Scientologist, and the German government has labeled Scientology a confidence scheme. When we began to ask Mr. Cruise about those complaints. He interrupted. The no, stories I understand. that appeared that, Ger- that no. German authorities weren't eager to... Yeah, uh, but you know what? And that's yeah. that's not true. There's a lot of misinterpretation. Yeah. Um, misinterpretation of, and, uh, and really even those comments within the country and the government were only from extremists. That was just in a, you know, a very... That, that they didn't want you to play this role. Yeah, it's not, it's well, not I think true. what happened, I think initially there might have been a knee-jerk reaction uh, because this story is very special to Germany and to their history and to a very, very uh, dark and terrifying history during the Second World War. So there might have been a knee-jerk reaction thinking, oh, the director of X-Men and Superman returns and the star of Mission Impossible are coming here to make some kind of action film out of it and distort the history. And to yeah. us, we knew that the, the, the actual well, honest the guy the goodness, who danced in his underwear in Risky Business. Well, you can't. I mean, no one, you know. I mean, <laughs> we'd be lucky to have a scene like that. No, but they, <laughs> but they, they, I... But very early on, we had tremendous support from the Resistance Museum. We were given access to all their materials, documents. We had meetings with historians, people who were there at the time. I mean, every location, every location we needed and asked for, including Bendlerblock, the German military headquarters where Klaus von Stauffenberg and three other plotters were shot to death by a firing squad when their coup failed. A plaque now rests in the building courtyard, inscribed with their names below the line. Here died for Germany. Before filming the scene of that execution, Tom Cruise and Brian Singer spoke to the actors and crew. It's a very powerful moment. Uh, you know, it's it's sacred ground for them, and and definitely for us when we, you know, these men and women who were diametrically opposed to the Nazis and National Socia- Socialism and Hitler. So we did take a moment. Tom spoke quite eloquently, and I asked for a moment of silence. Um, you know, all these places where people died, uh, um, this one uh, where there's a, a monument, mm-hmm. probably the only monument to a German uh, or in Germans who served during the Second World War, because the rest of that history is so shameful and uh, so hard for Germans to recognize. So for us to be filming in the very spot where that happened, that's the least we could do. 
and, and hopefully make the best film we could. I've had a lot of people want to talk about this movie, fascinated by the subject matter. And I'm talking about on the street. And you can always get a vibe on the people street. People can come up to you on the street? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking. I mean, no, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a much more social time. He's a much there's... more accessible guy than you'd think. <laughs> I mean, there are hundreds of people at a time, but <laughs> yes, they come up. They come up. And, you know, there, there's been uh, a real interest and excitement and a fascination with this subject matter. And as an American, I've had and was raised to have the ability to think for myself and have my own opinions, my own ideas. That's why even when the film opens with this oath, which I find just terrifying and bizarre, where Hitler had the army swear to God that they would follow him to the death. And it took me a while to wrap my wits around that. And every time we read it, mm. I remember we read uh, it was, yeah, it was a chilling. This is an, an army with tradition, with honor. Mm. You know, in spite of what the deeds they were capable of, this was the inner conflict. And a lot of, uh, you know, and Hitler was at a constant war with his army in a strange way. And these conspirators represented the group that went against the tide. Every time an audience sees it, I, I really enjoy hearing the reactions that know, we've it's had been very the exciting. conversations, the dialogue that this creates is fascinating. Gentlemen, thanks so much for Thank your you time. Thank you very much. Hey, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. And Merry and Christmas. Happy holidays. Have a happy holiday. See you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. A film Valkyrie opens nationwide on Thursday, Christmas Day. You can see movie clips and hear our entire interview with Tom Cruise and Brian Singer at our website, npr.org. And you can read my blog about our interview at npr.org slash soapbox. The warmth of the holiday season is the return each year of special traditions, stories you tell, foods you eat, or sometimes try to avoid, and the songs you sing. But who says you can't fold in some new traditions, too? That's Dreidel in a different key, from Aaron Baron Cohen's eclectic new album, Songs in the Key of Hanukkah. If that name sounds kind of familiar, he is, in fact, the brother of Sasha Baron Cohen, also known as Borat and Ali G. And if you've seen those films, then you have also heard Aaron Baron Cohen's music because he provided it for his brother's films. Aaron Baron Cohen joins us now from London. Thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. Do I understand this right? This came about because some uh, music executive couldn't find what he thought was a good Hanukkah album for his father? Yeah, I, I was in L.A. quite a lot last year. I met Jason Lynn, who's head of New Line Records, and uh, we were sort of talking about the idea of doing a, a Hanukkah album that was not for kids, that uh, would be really well produced and, and have really cool songs for the whole family. Up to this point, I remember from my childhood uh, listening to Hanukkah songs at home and listening to the, these uh, children singing slightly out of key and with some wonky old piano player joining them to make a terrible record. But I, I enjoyed it as a three-year-old, but after that it became a bit annoying. So the idea was to create a new concept in Jewish holiday music, something that, that everybody would enjoy listening to. Well, let, let's listen to another cut, if we could. This one gets sure gets 10 for danceability and, and 9. Pretty high mark for historical content. The year was 3622. Who God is like you? Bring the whole army to this small crew of Hebrews. Yochanan, Kohen, Gadol, retained control. High priest enlisted to save the national soul. After 84 years of oppressive injustice, you'd think that Yehuda and Shimon wouldn't crush this. Guerrilla warfare for 36 months. 40,000 soldiers couldn't take out one. Oppressed minority took back the authority. Revolution, the solution against the majority. The legislation aimed to make a pagan conformity. So we had to reject the Influence categorically criminalized our religion, outlawed circumcision. How you gonna make a child of God become what he isn't? Stand against the division, righteous acts of sedition, take strategic positions and defend the tradition. The tradition, the tradition. I love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, that track is was recorded with a great New York based rapper called Why Love, who's a based in New York black uh, rapper but converted to Orthodox Judaism and he raps in Yiddish. As well, on, and as well as English and Aramaic. So quite amazing to work with him. And 
it made even more interesting because we ended up recording him in Berlin where he was doing a gig <laughs> and uh, it just became very, a very surreal experience as a result. A, a, a generalization uh, that I want to get your reaction to if I could, uh, Mr. Baron Cohen, uh, seems to me that a lot of Christmas songs, not all of them obviously, but a lot of Christmas songs are about the holiday season but not about the religious event. Uh, Hanukkah songs are different. Less people, I think, think of the historical context. And that was something that I wanted to look into. And, and in that particular song with Why Love, uh, keep, keep the Fire Alive, it, we look at the actual um, amazing and terrible story of, the, of some of the history of this festival, which you know a lot of people don't really uh, necessarily think about. It's quite a sad story, but also quite hopeful. It's, it's about coming out of oppression, fighting tyranny, which are, you know, are universal themes that's very relevant for today. My Hanukkah, Zos Hanukkah, home Mikdash back, got blown like harmonicas, illumination, scintillation, a nation awakened against assimilation, learn the Torah from the spinning tops, eight nights, keep it hot, represent for what we got, the battle on the mountaintop. So how many different influences are in this album? I'm not sure. I, I, all I know is when I write music, I have a lot of different influences. I'm, I'm classically trained. I play trumpet. I, I was very into Miles Davis, but I was in a rock band in school and I was into talking heads and early electronic music, as well as playing in orchestras classically. So all or some of those influences come into the music I'm writing, mm -hmm. and they, they're, all, they're all somehow there in this album. Let's listen to another cut if we could here. Uh, and, and I think you're the, uh, the trumpet on this, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I, I probably would be, yeah. Spin it up. Am I wrong to hear uh, a suggestion of Herb Albert in your trumpet technique? <laughs> he was a great trumpet player, so thank you very much for that compliment. Um, I was I'm, on that track. I'm actually playing a flugelhorn, which is a, a kind of a softer kind of sound than the normal trumpet. And I think Herb Albert also played that occasionally. Uh, of course, the, for, for many people, the persisting image of Hanukkah has to do with the lights that build up night after night to eight candles and uh, I want to play a clip of a song and you and you pointedly title this song in Spanish don't you is it a la luz de la vela exactly or yes we work with um, a great singer Yasmin Levy who's a diva in the world music scene yes uh, who sings in Ladino which is a Judeo-Spanish and on this track in Spanish in un lugar tan lejos, en un Sobre una silla a la luz de la vela. Of course, in English, that would be in the light of the candles. Yes, that's right. And is that a, is that a is that a memory that stays with you? Certainly, I think as a child, and you know, I know that with my children, the, the lighting—it's it's an amazingly powerful ritual that you know lighting candles that which and one extra one every day is is a very somehow spiritual thing to do so it is the sort of overriding image of Hanukkah I think. Um, I, I'm told we have a special guest who's joining us now. Hello. Is this Sasha Baron Cohen? It is indeed. Well nice to talk to you I believe you you gentlemen have known each other all your lives. Yes we're related. And, and Sasha Baron Cohen are you ever confused with the figure skater? Often. Often. Only because of my figure, though. <laughs> Only when I'm wearing shorts. Is it tricky to be brothers who work together? I don't think so. I mean, we've, we've always really worked together. We used to um, do a sort of cabaret stand-up act around London. We used to um, dress up as Hasidic Jews, and we had a song called um, Schwitzing, which means sweating. And it was basically, the song was about a uh, couple of Hasids dressed in their traditional garb who start walking down the street on a sunny day and start sweating so much that eventually they take one thing off, then another, until they finally convert to Christianity. <laughs> There's a bit of a leap there. I mean, I, 
Yeah. Can't go yeah. through the whole thing. I think just being brothers means we just have an extra understanding. You know, certainly when scoring movies, you know, having an understanding with, with the producer or director or actors is very important. And, yeah. you know, working with Sasha, obviously, uh, who's very musical as well, that helps a lot, I think. You know, the great thing is that I have the creative trust in my brothers. So, for example, we, at one point during Borat, we needed a Kazakhstani national anthem because we couldn't clear the actual one. And I just called up Aaron and I said, we need one for tomorrow morning and we need to have a 50-strong Kazakhstani choir singing it. And Aaron basically stayed up all night, wrote it, and sang all 50 parts. You know, and yeah. I, in the morning it came back and it was funny, but it was real as well. You really believed that this could be the Kazakhstani national anthem, even though it was Aaron just singing alone in a room in the middle of the night. I found that song quite moving, actually. It is an emotional song. It, it was kind of based on Russian uh, you know, military, the massed voice singers of the uh, Russian army kind of sound. But it was actually just, just me singing alone, just multi-tracked about 40 times. There are millions of Americans and Britons uh, who for better or for worse, acquire the impression that Hanukkah is some kind of, of Jewish Christmas. And, of course, it's, it's not. And I wonder if, uh, if each of you could tell us what, uh, what the holiday means to you. For me, it's, you know, a family occasion, eating a couple of donuts, singing some songs, and hopefully now with my album we've got a couple more songs to sing. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it's also a festival that brings in the themes of rebellion and freedom and sort of celebration of identity. Well, gentlemen, thank you both very much. All right, much thank you very much for having for, me on. For being with thank us. Thank you so much. Sasha Baron-Cohen in Los Angeles, Aaron Baron-Cohen in London. His new album is Songs in the Key of Hanukkah. Rock of ages, let our song Raise your saving power you amidst the raging foes We're our sheltering tower Sheltering tower Sheltering tower Thanks very much for being with us here on At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. Hope you can join us next week. I'm Scott Simon. Happy holidays. Rock of ages, lit our song Praise your saving power you amidst the raging foes We're our sheltering tower You're my sheltering tower Sheltering tower Which we'll see.
disappearing 